Welcome to the third season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and in this season, I'll be sharing conversations with educators and leaders who are making schools and classrooms more phenomenal than ever before by implementing community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment practices that promote agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. I am honored to share these conversations of innovation and passion with all of you. Thank you so much for listening in. It is a great privilege to welcome Dr. Brian Camborn and Deborah Crouch back to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast to discuss the ways in which the conditions for learning are more relevant today than ever before. As I confessed in our last conversation, the conditions of learning have played an integral role in my classroom practice and my work with adult learners. I am passionate about the possibilities that transactional learning presents and am thrilled to explore the conditions of learning in more depth today. The constructivist nature of the model aligns closely with the work of PEBC and the PEBC teaching framework. The PEBC teaching framework centers students in the planning, learning, and assessment process, and today's conversation will feature how we can remain student-centered despite the constraints presented by the pandemic and the pressure to catch students up at any cost. If you are unfamiliar with Dr. Camborn's theory of learning and the conditions of learning, you can download a brief explanation via a link in the show notes. It is with great pleasure that I have the opportunity to connect virtually once again with Brian and Deborah to talk about their book and the ways in which the conditions for learning are still revolutionary. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having us Thank back. You. Yes. Well, it's great to see both of you and just to, to dive in today into this big question around the conditions of learning. You know, the the model and the theory itself is is so relevant to children learning in classrooms, children learning in the world, and adults learning. But I think that um, today's conversation is going to be really, really important because we can contextualize the conditions of learning into the time today. And so last year, when you both joined me, we talked about your book, Made for Learning, and really wanted to dive into that idea that learning can be transformational and engaging and it's it's not just transmissional right there's that transactional component where students are interacting and experiencing a, a broad range of experiences so i'm curious as to what you've noticed in classrooms and schools this past year what are you seeing as students and teachers adjust to the realities of teaching and learning during a pandemic deb i'm not sure if you want to start us off Okay. Yes. Oh, and it, it has been a year, hasn't it? I think we all thought that last year was going to be the 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 year for, uh, for all of our thinking, but this is this is turning out to be a very challenging year for everyone. And I've um, spent a lot of time in schools this year. I've been working in a project um, here where I live in San Diego with thirty one schools, and um, one of the things uh, you know that we've just been so. Um, aware of is how all of the adults are showing up for the kids. You know, all mm -hmm. of the adults are, are there, they're present and, you know, really thinking about how even with, with all of the constraints of, of masks and social distancing that learning has continued and mm -hmm. teachers are there and, and students are there. And it's just, it's been so interesting to, to think about how we've all had to adjust, obviously, 
you know, our physical environments have had to change, you know, for children and for adults. Um, you know, we've adjusted our PD right alongside and, you know, using a virtual mix, you know, virtual mix of virtual and, and um, in-person PD. And one of the things I think that's been so powerful is how, as we've kept everything student-centered and as mm-hmm. we've kept the focus being about students, it's really helped teachers to be so receptive to professional learning. It's helped us to think about, you know, as we are are there in classrooms and as I'm walking alongside principals to visit their classrooms, you know, things that I'm noticing is that, uh, you know, kids are, you know, being kids and they're just digging in and, and, and appreciating, I think, being in school and teachers are are they're welcoming and they're and they're warm and they're loving and just honoring and valuing the ideas um, that kids are bringing with them and you know it's not always comfortable you know the situations are are crazy you know you're having to ask everyone to repeat because masks are in the way and all of that but you know I see kids who are hungry for books I see kids who are hungry for writing and the social interaction that that happens in a classroom and it, it's in a sense it almost felt like a privilege to be back in person. Mm. Um, so that's, that's kind of been the feeling for me this year. Oh gosh, Deb, thank you so much for sharing that. It's so inspirational. Just thinking about that idea of, of the energy coming back that even though it's hard, that teachers and our, our students are viewing school as a privilege somewhere they want to be. So Brian, for you, what have you noticed in this past year? Well, I'm reminded of something the late, great Frank Smith once said, um, that learning cannot be turned on and off like a tap. It's a continuous process and is happening all the time. And I think it's important that we remember our students will have been learning from what's been going on around them as the, uh, <clears throat> as the pandemic changed the way the schools operated. Down here in Australia, the, the situation has been very fluid with neither parents, teachers nor kids knowing for certain whether schools would be open or shut. If they were open, they didn't know whether they would be in a normal classroom or whether social distancing would mean they would not be with sitting with their friends or, or whether they would be wearing masks and so on. If overnight a school discovers that their students or teachers have been infected or have been in close contact, with an infected person, the parents get phone calls or SMS messages telling them to prepare for a Zoom virtual school session using iPads and computers. So I think this means that our students are continually being immersed in uncertainty. They are engaging with the expectations of sudden change, receiving demonstrations from anxious and confused teachers uncertain of how to respond to such continually changing, insecure situations. Aussie teachers have had to understand how the conditions of learning have been operating for their students and developing ways of operating that offer security from this confusion. Hmm. Brian, thank you for just helping us think through that because kids and adults have been learning this whole time. As you quoted, learning is continuous. It's, it's not like a tap. We can't turn it off. And so through all of these experiences, students have been learning so much, and so have teachers. And I think that takes us to our next question. 
You know, in your book, Made for Learning, you both write about how the conditions for learning can be used to really help guide decisions and to create those opportunities for true student engagement, which leads to true student learning and understanding. Um, And one thing I really like about the text is how you share how the conditions of engagement, immersion, demonstration, employment, expectation, approximation, responsibility, and response all work synergistically to support student engagement and student understanding. We both have just highlighted for us in the different ways in which today's learning environments are constantly changing, that we're constantly experiencing a bit of disruption and change. And so we might even argue that learning is adapting a bit, but from your perspective, in what ways are the conditions for learning even more relevant than ever before? And Brian, you just touched on that, but let's go into a little bit more depth. Well, I'd like to remind teachers that as a species, we are the only one that can make meaning from abstract symbols and symbol systems. No other species can do it. The two dominant symbol systems we have to learn to use are oral and written language. Although there are others like sign, gesture, art, numbers, etc. that we can also make meaning from. The conditions of learning emerged from years of observational research. I did watching kids learn to control the oral language of the culture into which they were born. These conditions which emerged describe the complex amalgamation of physical, ecological, social, emotional and contextual factors which were present when kids learned to talk. They have to be all present, working together, or the level of engagement, which is the fundamental condition, will not occur or will be very shallow. Teachers have to use these conditions to create learning settings which promote and support meaning-making using symbols. Wow. So, yeah. I I just really... (laughs) uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Michelle. Sorry. No, you go ahead. We both are just nodding and thinking like... (laughs) Let's take that in for a moment. <laughs> Deb, what did you want to add and what do you want to build on to? Well, I think the um, the conditions are actually even more relevant now because I think they take us to this understanding that, that teaching is really creating a space for learning to occur. And so we've got to just be aware of all of those different conditions and how they work together in a classroom in order to make sure that we've got the most, um, the most opportunity for learning that's possible um, for our kids. And, you know, just thinking about that, you know, what you were saying there, Brian, about engagement, you know, and, and I think more than anything right now, teachers are really recognizing they're aware of what their students understand. Um, and even if we're thinking, you know, sometimes people are thinking, oh, well, maybe they're not where I wish they were kind of thing in relation to standards and all those other sorts of things. I do really think that teachers are in a place of accepting and validating what students are bringing and Mm -hmm. recognizing that we've got to start from that place. And so, you know, maybe this is one of those silver linings that's going to come out of all of this is that it's this, you know, we, I think we've all talked about student-centered for a long time, right? We all, all use that term, but I think recognizing that that really means that it's a time when we have to focus on what our students are bringing um, and that that's really the only way that we can 
can create this environment that makes sense for kids. Because if we're not starting in a place where meaning is in, in, in place for kids, then we're not going to have the kind of learning environments that we want. So, you know, beginning our instruction based on approximations is what we've got to be thinking a lot about. Um, well, and that's what I'd love for us to, to talk about is just this idea that right now the systems are really, really stressed. And Deb, you just mentioned it. And I think, Brian, you referred to it a little bit earlier, is that there is a narrative around learning loss right now that students aren't aren't where they're maybe quote unquote supposed to be. And I think that's coming more from a system level than maybe a teacher level. I think, Deb, what you just said is so honoring of teachers. Teachers are so smart. They can identify where their kids are and really honor that and, and move from there. But if we were to think about the conditions of learning, and we're, you know, I think we all agree that these systems work synergistically and there are these variables that we can maybe like turn the volume up and down on within our classroom, within that school environment. But when we think specifically around student growth, if teachers have that concern, which specific conditions would be particularly relevant in paying even a little bit closer attention to? Well, I believe that teachers have to help their students understand the role that approximations play in effective learning. Mm. Remember, many of them will come from environments where parents, caregivers, siblings will have given the message that errors and mistakes are bad things and need to be avoided. Helping students understand the value of approximations may take some time. Probably the best example I can give you is um, in my final years of teaching at the university, um, we, we received a lot of overseas students from Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam. And they come from a culture where learning is not constructivism. Learning is rote memorization from what the teacher tells you, and then you regurgitate it in the test. And when they arrived in my classes and I said to them, well, uh, here's a problem we have to solve. Um, I want you to get in groups and work out how you might go about solving this problem. Well, the Southeast Asian students just couldn't do it. In fact, some of them reported me to the dean and said that they can't learn that way, that I should be teaching them the way that their teachers taught them in Southeast Asia. That is, I'm the font of all wisdom. I tell them what it is they need to learn. They wrote, memorise it and regurgitate it. And please would the dean tell me that that's the way I need to teach. So... Um, I think under, helping students understand the role that approximations plays in learning um, is probably the basic thing you need to get these contexts working. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Brian. I, yeah. now, I would add on to that. Like, I think the things that, that I think about, you know, from, from that teacher standpoint is thinking about expectation. I think that's a big one, mm. especially when we, when we think about that just even the wording learning loss, you know, right. that's such a deficit kind of way of thinking. 
Um, and I think if we, if we understand that expectations are beliefs in learners, our beliefs in their abilities, and that it, um, and then, and then it's also connected to learners having that belief in themselves as learners, that if we go in with a mindset that students aren't capable or aren't where they should be, and, and we go in with that deficit model, then, you know, our response to students communicates a message that they really are going to struggle and that, that, you know, and that's, that just affects engagement in such a powerful way because then the learners don't see themselves um, as, as the doers of whatever it is that we're learning. So, you know, I think, you know, when we think about approximations and expectations and, and our responses, you know, this is, those are sort of those underlying beliefs about learning that really make learning easier for children. And I think, you know, sometimes we just, we make learning so hard because we're not thinking about what do kids already understand so that we can then build on that belief. And I always think that's, that's really where assessment has to, to play a, a, a huge role is are our assessments set up to show us what kids do understand versus all the things that they don't. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think, again, those are, those can be classroom um, conversations, but those can also be systems conversations as well about how we, about how we use our understandings. Um, and just, you know, again, how do we make learning occur most easily for a child? Well, I think that's interesting because we're almost talking about a like a dichotomy or a little bit of a delicate balance, because on one hand you have approximations which are errors or mistakes or attempts to something. And then the other hand, you have this idea of expectations. And our expectations have to sit in that asset-minded space so that our students see themselves as those doers. But at the same time, we need to learn and observe and notice approximations so that we can move students towards that growth. And so, Deb, when you brought up the idea of beliefs, it really got me thinking about the, how our beliefs play out in the classroom. And I know that, Brian, you have a lot of thinking about the, those ideas around beliefs. And, and what, would you, what would you suggest to teachers who are, who are kind of playing with this tension right now? Yeah. Um, I think teachers need to be given the opportunity to um, explore their beliefs about effective mm. learning um, in groups of peers so that they can... Um, listen to other people's beliefs and values, and um, preferably if the professor is there as well uh, or someone like the professional developer can share their beliefs too. And I always found that when I shared my beliefs about effective learning, it would help teachers readjust their own thinking and communicate with each other and I could gradually see them shifting their values and beliefs so that they were more constructivist, if you like, in nature. And um, I used to tell them that um, the beliefs and values that we have are really tied up anyway for me. They were really closely connected with the maintenance of democracy as we yeah. currently understand it. Um, I really believe that schools need to produce cohort after cohort of critically aware, productive readers and writers. 
And in order to do this, I believe we must make learning to read and write as uncomplicated and barrier-free as possible, especially for those who've been marginalised by poverty or racism. Implementing the conditions of learning synergistically is what makes this possible. And a key component of this is the honouring of learning, of learners' approximations. And um, I, I like to draw teachers' attention to baby talk. Um, most of them are, uh, have been in the situation of big brother or sister or mother or father or aunt or grandparents, and they've heard their toddlers um, engage in what they call baby talk, um, which I prefer to call temporary language <laughs> because it, 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 does, uh, it does drop out. Um, and I try to point out that all of those caregivers know almost intuitively how to respond to their toddler's language approximations. And they don't respond in the way that I used to respond when I first began teaching. When I first began teaching, I'd come through a system where behaviourism was the theory that we were all trained on. And um, I would respond to kids' mistakes by saying, no, that's wrong, look at, look at that again, um, um, sound it out carefully. Um, whereas when kids are learning to talk, if we did that, kids would soon give up learning to talk. Um, mm. I think we'd raise what John Holt once called a nation of mute cripples if we try to teach them to talk. The, if we try to teach them to walk and talk the way that behaviourists try to teach them to read and write, then we would produce a nation of mute cripples, which I think is very, um, very accurate about how the conditions of learning need to be used um, and the, the baby talk or temporary language example is one that most teachers can um, relate to. They understand. Mm. Absolutely. So I think what's interesting, Brian, is that you've just taken us into a couple of the other conditions in terms of thinking about expectations and approximation really sit in those beliefs and the ways in which we might respond to students. I'd love for us to think a little bit about actions, specifically teacher practice and instructional moves. How might we implement more intentionally or what might we implement more intentionally in our daily instruction to meet those needs of today's students? Like what, maybe kind of diving into a couple of the other conditions and how those work synergistically or in concert with approximation and expectation. Deb, what are you thinking? Well, I think, you know, when we, when we start to think about what occurs and what happens in a classroom, you know, we've got this belief system in place that a couple of the thing, the conditions that always pop to mind to me are immersion and demonstration mm -hmm. um, sort of collectively, and then as well employment. So, you know, when I think about um, all those approximations that we've been talking so much about, like learning to use those approximations to help us think about what needs to be demonstrated when, what kinds of immersion do the students really need um, in terms of language and ideas so that 
you know, we can, can make sure that we're creating this space where thinking is occurring, you know, and, you know, for me, that screams read aloud, read aloud and shared reading to me are those two big practices that, you know, we just, I think we probably can't do enough of in a day. You know, I think some, I've been with teachers who say, you know, I don't get much read aloud in and I'm like, oh my gosh, that should be the first thing on your schedule because that's the, that's the big thing. That's where meaning happens. That's where kids learn to feel what it's like in their brains to make meaning, right? So that we build mm-hmm. from that. Um, and, you know, and then writing is another immersion experience, you know, writing to and for kids so that they begin to, you know, hold on to that message and continue to grow that message that print, um, you know, that print carries meaning. Um, and it's, and it's all about communication. Um, so those are two pieces I think that are really important. And then, you know, we've got to make sure that our students have enough time to independently read. I think that was the big thing that was missing for so many kids during the lockdown was that we just, kids just didn't have access to books. They didn't have access to materials to read. And so, you know, one of the things that we know is that um, it's so crucial that kids are provided those opportunities. Um, One of the things I think in classrooms that the sad truth is that when we think of kids as struggling, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, the thing that tends to go first is independent reading. Right. It's, it's the piece that we take that time to, for them to meet with another adult, right? So if you're struggling, that means that you need more time with an adult. And so one of the things that um, I was thinking about, um, about this recently was a, a friend of mine that I write so much about in the book, Trish. Um, one of the things that she taught me in my, uh, in my years with her um, she was setting up independent reading as a kindergarten teacher now. So she's here with the little ones, you know, it's the beginning first couple of months of school and she's setting up independent reading. And one of the things that she did was to spend a week, this is a you know few weeks into school, but spent a week having the children try out different partners because she believed independent reading should have a partnership time in it as well. So it wasn't reading alone by yourself the whole time. It was also having time to talk with people about the books that you're reading. So she spent a week setting up partnerships and giving the kids opportunities to try out different partnerships. And the whole time they were thinking and talking about what would make a good partner. You know, is it somebody who just likes to read exactly the same books? Is it your best friend? You know, and then, you know, talking about, you know, how wonderful if they let you see the pictures when they read, that would be a great thing, wouldn't it? So all of these wonderful, fun, you know, kindergarten kinds of conversations. And so during that week, um, towards the end of that week, they all selected their partnerships. They let her know who they felt would be the best partner for them. And I remember these two little ones, um, Jonathan and Maya, who decided they would be partners. And Trish would ask each of the partnerships, why did you choose this partner? Why do you think this would be a strong partnership? And, and Jonathan, who was a student who had been identified for special education already, um, he spoke up right away and he said, because Maya knows how to read and I like someone to read to me. <laughs> because Maya was that student who came in reading or she came mm-hmm. into kindergarten reading. Right. So they had decided this would be the perfect partnership. And one of the things, so that was a wonderful moment, but the interesting thing for me as a teacher was in the spring when I was doing running records in her classroom, taking some running records with the kids. When I assessed Jonathan, he was reading on grade level mm-hmm. on his assessment. 
And I fully believe that a big part of that was because he had so much time reading himself because he would read to Maya, but he also got what, you know, we all love that phrase, double dose. He got extra read aloud because Maya was reading to him every day during independent reading, in addition to what Trish was doing. So that extra read aloud supported him to understand what meaning was like. And so he was a reader for meaning. And I think that just is such a, um, you know, just such a way of a different way of thinking about how we support learners who need more in certain areas with their conditions so that we can make, you know, make sure that the conditions meet those learners needs, not the learners meeting our needs. Absolutely. And what's interesting about those three conditions working together in that context is you have demonstration, immersion, and employment. And so there's that opportunity to see example after example of example or hear example of example, the immersion with all of the text and the time with the text. And I think that employment, and I think employment is a condition that maybe sometimes folks forget because I think the synonym might be practice in some ways or application. But in in that story, Deb, you just really highlighted the importance of all three, but particularly that employment piece that we have to practice. We have to have a chance to drive the car. And so that just is, I just, I think so important right now, especially when there are so many opportunities for learners to be working in a variety of small groups with a variety of, of adults is to ask ourselves, when, when do kids have time for employment? When do they have time to practice? So thank you so much. Brian, how about you? What are you thinking about? As, as I was listening to Deb, um, it, it reminded me that um, that a process called bonding mm. is absolutely necessary. It's, it's like the glue or the cement that enables immersion and demonstration and expectations to all work the way they're supposed to work. And it means that teachers must respond to learners in ways that continually give the message that they like and value them that they accept all of them as unique and important individuals and that they as teachers or as partners, like with the two little kids that Deb described, are really worth bonding with. These are the messages that caregivers, especially grandparents, give when caring for newborn members of the tribe and this is why they bond with them. When there is no bonding, there is no learning. And there's been some recent research from Soviet countries where in order to allow parents to work, they set up these huge nurseries where all kids were sent to the nursery, but nobody talked to them. They just fed them, cleaned them, put them to bed, and no bonding took place. And these kids um, ended up with severe language deficits by the time they were five or six. So this notion of presenting yourself as someone worth bonding with, someone who can convey to the learner that they really value them as people and and they're there for them, it's their best interests that they're there to serve. If you can authentically communicate that to your learners, then they will engage with you 
and they will um, benefit from the demonstrations and immersion that you provide for them. Mm. Brian, thank you so much for reminding us of the importance of relationships and that the critical aspect of, of bonding in order to really engage and to learn. So thank you. Um, as we wrap up today, I'd love to ask you both my 2022 question. Um, what is your call to action? Oh, oh gosh, action is such a, <laughs> an interesting thing right now, isn't it? Because there's is. so many challenges with everything. Uh, yeah, I sent a text this morning to a, um, some principal friends just checking in and saying, you know, I'm sending positive thoughts your way. And one of the principals texted back and he said, please don't say the word positive. <laughs> Because of all of the testing that's going on, right? Um, but you know, I think I think this is the time for teachers to really just think about essentials. You know, I mean, I I just wish I could just you know wrap my arms around them and just say, you know, this is that time when you have to just accept that this is a different time and allow yourself just to recognize what matters when it's a difficult time. Um, you know, I've just been reading this book called Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times by Catherine May. And one of the things that she talks about is that it's during these times that you have to slow down and let um, what she referred to as the spare time expand. And she said, you know, make sure you're getting enough sleep and rest and how that's a radical act in and of itself. And I thought in relation to classrooms, you know, it's a radical act to slow down. It's a radical act to stop always checking the clock and constantly just, just you know, thinking minutes and, and that sort of thing. But also making sure that the way we spend the time that we have is what's most important for kids. You know, reading aloud to them, giving the time for them to read themselves. I mean, as we've talked about that, those practices to me are those basics. They're those essentials. They're the, the things you go to when it gets difficult. You come back to those basics um, and just just recognize that, that, you know, that kindness and that love that, that happens during those moments is what's really essential right now. Deb, thank you. Brian, you get the last word. What's your call to action for us? Um, it's, it's not a phrase that, that I use very much. Um, but I think I know what it means. Um, for me, my hope is that um, I stay well enough and healthy enough to be able to continue to work with teachers who give me the privilege of visiting their classrooms and observing them and interacting with them. Um, I find that that's the most um, effective way of getting them to really think deeply about their beliefs and how they can put them into practice. And um, just before I retired a while ago, um, I was working with a group of teachers from a, um, a school in our poorer socioeconomic area, and we were examining the language that they use to teach. One of the things that I tried to introduce, introduce them to was um, Peter Johnson's work on um, the way that teachers use language can Absolutely. really dispose kids to a certain way of learning and a certain way of thinking. And so these four young teachers said, yes, yes, we'd like to examine our language. 
where can we start? And I said, well, let's just see if we can stop using the word work to describe what we do, what the business of school is. Is it possible to declare a moratorium on using the word work and call what the we do in school something different, call it learning, call it meaning-making, but let's avoid the term work. You know, let's stop saying good work or if you work hard, I'll give you an early mark and so on. Um, what I found interesting was that they all eagerly accepted this challenge, but after about half an hour, they admitted they couldn't do it. Mm. And it sent them back to thinking about really how they can be consciously aware for a whole teaching session of how they use language in order to um, persuade kids to learn through meaning-making. And um, so what I hope to be able to do is continue that kind of work. Um, you know, but I am going on 86 and... Uh, I'm now legally blind and I can't drive, so it depends on having somebody, a driver, to get me to and from schools. But I'm working on that. <laughs> Brian, it is such an honor and such a pleasure to have this conversation and this time with you. And if I was in Australia, I would happily pick you up and take you anywhere you would like to be. Um, this has just been just a professional, just such a blessing to, to have this time and to, and to hear about your experiences and your perspectives and, and just how true that is. Just how can we, how can we make these shifts that put students at the center and, and the best of what our students have for us? And Deb, such a pleasure to meet you and to hear about your work. And thank you very much. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity, Maureen. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. 